Yo. Thanks, Nelika. Thanks, Lauren. What a great start. And um, yeah, I, I actually want to reflect a little bit on growth, really, if I can. Um, <coughs> somewhat abstractly in a way, and not as beautifully and as poetically as uh, thinking about the mysterious alchemical and organic process of growth, like flooding and teeming and the ebb and flow of, of just nature itself. I'm going to overlay some of that with some categories here in a second. Um, I want to talk about transcend and include, backed by popular demand, okay? It's a phrase I've used a few times, given a few little minor chats on it, um, but it's come up again. Transcend and include, what, what the heck are we talking about? Or are we talking about anything, really? Or does that just sound kind of fancy? Um, yeah, so I want to talk about transcend and include and as it relates to growth and as it relates to, to consciousness. And um, so that's kind of where I'm heading. And um, maybe I should say that I don't have the final word here in case, you're <laughs> in case you're wondering. I'm not attempting to have the final word. I have a podcast. I'm not, you know, no. <laughs> you should listen to my podcast. Um, but it's called Hints and Guesses. And that's a line from T.S. Eliot. And um, that's the spirit in which I'm giving this talk. That's the spirit in which I give all my talks, that I'm hoping that I will stumble across a few hints and guesses as I'm musing. And maybe you'll hear a few hints and guesses in what I'm attempting to say here. So that's where I'm going. So transcend and include. The first thing I want to say is that the idea is very simple. All right? Transcend and include is very simple. Um, that everything in nature... That is complex. In other words, everything in nature transcends and includes previous modes of being. All right? Everything in nature, everything, transcends and includes previous modes of being. Um, for example, molecules, molecules include atoms. Okay? Maybe that's news to you, but uh, now you know. Cells include molecules. Amazing. Um, it's not that the molecules transcend the atom and then graduate from atomness and no longer need atoms. All right? Or that molecules start mocking atoms, like atoms, stupid atoms. They're so myopic, they're so small minded, you know. They're not as complex as the molecule, you know or whatever, or cells start mocking molecules. Look at those idiotic molecules. Look at us in our cellular complexity and so forth. Anyway, nature doesn't work that way. So that's, that's another way of saying that's just the way the world is. So the question is something like this. Does this apply to consciousness itself? And that's a question, really. What I'm, what I'm, what I'm going to say is more in the lines of a model or maybe even a theory, but I think more in terms of a model, a possible way of holding the world here. Does this apply to consciousness it itself? Like, if we think about consciousness in stages, any kind of stage map will do for, for a second, but if you think about consciousness in, sa in stages, say one map from magic, magic-oriented consciousness to mythic, as like a center of gravity, myth, mythic, to rational, a rational framework. These are all possible modes of consciousness, stages really of consciousness. Pluralistic would be after 
rational. So I've gone magic, mythic, rational, pluralistic, to, to what I'm going to refer to as integral in a second. The question is, do each of those stages transcend and include the previous one? In other words, the rational, which we're actually much more comfortable with, does it, first of all, is it actually transcending previous modes of consciousness, say magic, magical thinking? Um, you know, if I go outside and uh, sprinkle some uh, elmwood ash in the air, will it rain? Okay, most of you say, maybe if you're lucky. Okay, why would you say that? Why would you say that? Because um, maybe your mode of consciousness, even the stage of consciousness you might be in is rational. You say, hey, you're not going to control the weather, man. Um, but the question is, does it include previous modes of consciousness? That's, that's a good question in and of itself. Um, so to put more simply, if there is such a thing as growing up in our thinking or our consciousness or our awareness, how do we treat the previous stage we were in five minutes ago? That's one of the questions I want to wrestle with. So if there even is such a thing as growing up, I used to think this, believe this, this is my center of gravity, and I've graduated from that, so to speak. Maybe I didn't even choose it. Maybe it's kind of like the lake. It just fills up one day because of an atmospheric river. By the way, I like new phrases that come into like our language and we act like we've been using them for years. Oh, yeah, the atmospheric river, yeah. What a river that is. Or, or like El Nino, you know. Like, I'm going to date myself, but remember, remember when Chris Farley would dress up as El Nino and, and just yell, El Nino, you know, as if everyone had just always been using that phrase for all of time. I am El Nino. Anyway, that had nothing to do with anything. Okay, so the question is at hand. Um, does this apply to consciousness? Um, and if we can grow up in our consciousness, even if it just happens naturally, it's not always such a rational choice, how do we treat previous stages or do we dismiss them? Is it transcend and exclude? Because that's what I like, okay? Transcend and exclude. I would be like the um, cell that would mock the molecules. Or the atoms, they're even more small-minded than me and my cellular complexity, okay, transcend and exclude. It's actually what most of us are comfortable with, I'll explain why in a second, but these are questions I want to try to explore. Um, so, for example, if you were religious at one point in your life, say like five minutes ago, right? in, in 4.5 billion years, you were religious five minutes ago. You believe certain things. No, you say, well, I, I'm, I got out of that. Okay, fine. The rest of you, you were religious five minutes ago. How do you treat then if you've, and now you're spiritual. You've moved on. You've graduated. You get a little certificate. They put it around you. You move your tassel. I'm, I'm spiritual now. I'm not religious. How do you treat your own religious self? that was real and authentic five minutes ago, much less someone who, who, who was there where you were five minutes ago? Right. I think it's a fair question. Or let's say you were a fundamentalist of some sort, any kind of fundamentalist, like you could be a scientific fundamentalist, you could be um, a religious fundamentalist, or very certain ideas about God or even politics. 
and then came to see how blind you were and myopic. And Wait a minute, I had my blinders on here. Then how do you treat people who were, who were just your friends like five minutes ago? Okay? These, I think, are important questions, at least to me. So here's where things get more interesting. The, the phrase transcend and include I, I got from Ken Wilber. Ken Wilber is a master philosopher of sorts, but he steals from everybody and readily admits. So it's probably not even his phrase, but that's where I first heard it, transcend and include. Um, and he says there's something funny that happens in, in stages of consciousness, human consciousness, that is different than, say, the natural world, or appears different, at least on the surface. He says... He, he divides human consciousness into two tiers. Right? You'll be able to track with this. It's not that hard. Here's first-tier consciousness. I'll give you the list again. Magic, mythic, rational, and pluralistic. He calls this first-tier consciousness. Magic, mythic, rational, pluralistic. You could even think about your life. Have I gone through these? Magic, Santa, mythic, literally a man lived inside the belly of a fish for a while. His name was... Jonah, Pinocchio, um, rational, that's a bunch of bullshit, <laughs> pluralistic, well, are we, maybe we should be open to all kinds of perspectives. You know, can, can you see, can you feel that? He says first tier has all of something in common. In order to move on, it has to reject the previous stage. It's part of the energy of movement, of growth. It actually has to reject the previous stage. Like, the mythic rejects magical thinking. Say, oh, you're little amulets and casting lots and saying spells. No, there's a god or gods that are controlling and there are stories about them and we should align ourselves. It rejects the previous stage. And rational rejects the mythic. Say, oh, there's no, there's no deity up there pulling the strings, you know. This is not like, you know, there's no puppeteer up there. It's just raw science, and pluralistic actually rejects rational. It says, oh, you can't just bow down at the altar of scientific certainty because, after all, you have the observer, and the observers cannot be fully objective. It's impossible, which is also a universal claim, so it falls in on itself, but you see what I'm saying. It rejects the previous stage, and that's part of the energy of it, and we have to acknowledge that. Like, how many of you, just, you don't have to raise your hand, but at some point, moved on from a previous worldview, but also enjoyed rejecting it. Oh, I did. Even though I held that position five minutes ago, I'm like, what a bunch of idiots, okay? Because it's part of the energy of, of growth to a certain extent. It's like, I hate to use this as an analogy, but I'm of the age where a lot of my friends are going through divorces. And here's just a pattern I've noticed. At a certain point, in order to get the energy up for a divorce, because it's not that easy, and it's not that fun, in case you've been through it, a certain amount of rejection of either the institution of marriage or of the person is needed just to get the courage to, to, to get up and go. You know what I'm saying? It's like, they're the problem, I'm out of here. Okay? Even if 10 years later, it's like, wait a minute, you know, I guess... We were both the problem, or something like that. It's part of the energy. Rejection is part of the energy. And, it, and the reason why I'm mentioning that is because I don't think we can get out of it. But 
it becomes very hard when you're in that first tier consciousness to transcend and include because it's easier to transcend and, re and reject, okay? So the fact that you do it and I do it, I'm just saying it's par for the course. Now, what Ken Wilber is saying is another mode of consciousness is on the rise, what he's calling second tier, and it's integral. And here's the fundamental difference. Integral has the capacity to include what's true from previous stages. And he says that is brand new. It's a brand new mode of consciousness. Can collect up and say there's something of the magic that is true and is a part of me and is needed. It's not that it's 100% true, but there's a dimension of truth in it. And something of the mythic and something of the rational. Do you feel how just like collecting that up Easier said than done, but that's his major um, argument. Okay. What do I want to do? Let's take the story of Jonah, for example. I thought I'd give a good biblical example. How many of you think that a man lived inside a fish for three days um, and like swam under the ocean for a while? and then got vomited out on the shore. Anyone believe that literally happened? Why, why not? You know why not? Because that's impossible. <laughs> or we get into an argument of maybe it is possible. Maybe there was an air pocket, okay? Maybe just before he went in, he grabbed some bread, you know? We just don't know. You never know these things. Or, um, you know, he happened to have a flask with him, and it was like really close to his mouth, so he was like sipping on some water, and he somehow survived. Or you could say God made him survive, something like that. So the story of Jonah, just like the entire biblical canon, and like every myth and every story that has carried humanity for a long time, once it was confronted with rational, modern, scientific, post-enlightenment thinking, it got absolutely hammered. And the rational... Post-enlightenment thinking just simply said, this is physically, scientifically, historically impossible. Therefore, it's not true. It has to, it's transcended the previous mode, but rejected. And what's the rejection? It's not true. And actually, things like this, very simple things like this, people just walk away from in the entire faith tradition because of this. They say, well, I got a point, okay? So what I want to try to do, and this is going to be a bit challenging, but I'm going to try to read the story of Jonah. I'm not going to read it, read it. I'm going to tell you the story of Jonah, and I'm going to try to use an integral perspective here. I'm going to try to say, what if I, we can both transcend and include all these modes of consciousness from the story itself? All right, you with me? Well, I'm doing it anyway, so. First of all, the story begins with actually some magical thinking. All right, Jonah gets in a ship, and a big storm comes up. And the men in the ship say, somebody on board is the problem, okay? Now, think about that for a moment. This is what, what would be called magical thinking in a way. It's like the ship is contaminated in some way by a person. It'd be like if the Titanic was struck by an iceberg and their conclusion was 
to throw the captain overboard. He, he caused this somehow for us. Now we're getting into some interesting terrain. I'll drop that. And how they do it is they cast lots, and that's what they do. They throw Jonah overboard, and they think by appeasing the sea, which is a living, animate being in the ancient world, there'll be some understanding, some reconciliation, and they'll hopefully survive the storm, okay? And when that worldview is present, that's the only worldview that's present. It's not like among the others. It's not like someone on the ship was like, now, wait a minute. Have we considered weather patterns? And, um, you know, whatever, and so forth. The atmospheric river? The atmospheric river is at work again, okay? Okay, there's no, there's no science in that, in that way, so there aren't a lot of options. So magical thinking is present. Now, a true integral perspective would, would say something, would wonder something like, what's here, what is in the animistic, magical worldview that's actually true? And I'll give you some things. The environment is alive and conscious. That's what animism basically promotes, that the, the actual environment, the sea is alive and has a kind of consciousness, and that we are in dynamic relationship with the sea itself, with the earth itself. Now, does that sound true to you? In a way, it does. Now, we might not then think about the consciousness as being like a being or like Poseidon or something like that, but the fact that the earth, that the ocean is alive and that whatever we do, whatever we do, whether it's throw a man overboard or not, is in a kind of reciprocal relational dynamic with everything else. That's one of the gifts of animistic worldview, of the magic worldview. And can it be integrated? It should be integrated. How you treat anything is how you treat everything. Really, what you throw on the ground is in dynamic relationship with everything else. That's the gift and it is a kind of truth inside the magic worldview. Well, what about the mythic? Well, think about the classic. Jonah is actually very traditionally a classic myth. It has a kind of mythic structure to it where you have these components. You have a man running from a deity, in this case, going out on a journey, which gets interrupted. He's swallowed. He descends into the underworld. Um, he experiences some kind of what I would call a sort of dark enlightenment in the underworld, which is what happens in underworld stories. He's vomited out on another shore. He's given another chance, another mission in a way. And the book ends with a question. I'll get to that in a moment. So it, there's a twist in the book, but it ends with a question. Now, what's true? How many of you have been going along in life and been thrown overboard and had to descend deeper into what's really true for you. Or you thought life was going to go some, a certain way and was going to work out in a certain you know, sequence of events. And you thought you knew what was important, what was valuable, and who loved you and who didn't. And suddenly, life throws you overboard and you have no choice but to go down. Okay? Any alcoholic will tell you, Jonah is true. Okay? That's part of the gift of the mythic, the mythic framework. And it absolutely should be integrated and collected up. Now, what about the rational? Well, I actually think there's a lot of value in saying this story didn't happen. Do you know what the follow-up follow question is? Well, why is it there? You know? If it didn't happen, 
then what's the point of it? So the, the rational, although it can come in, and I think biblical criticism, criticism of myth, criticism of stories, historical criticism, all has a very, very valuable role to play. It just doesn't really answer the question of what do we do with it if our only lens is whether something happened or not. I'm not going to say much more about the rational. Pluralistic. The Hebrew people have some corner on the truth. This is what the pluralists would come along and say. The Hebrew people have some corner on the truth. Like, okay, let's say the story of Jonah didn't happen the way it happened, but aren't they communicating something? And what is that something? And how is that corner of the truth in, in dynamic relationship with another people group or another religion or another perspective? This is what the pluralist is, tend, tends to be good at. That some point of view um, is valuable. Any point of view is valuable. Now, I have to be honest, though. Most people who present as pluralists aren't really that pluralistic. They're pluralistic about some things, but other things, they're not so pluralistic. They're, it's sort of like, oh, just last week I was reading about Vishnu and the Bodhisattva vow and, uh, and samsara and asangra and... Um, the eightfold path of truth, and but Easter is ridiculous, you know? <laughs> Death and resurrection of a man? This is insane, okay? Because pluralism tends to, as it expresses modernly, likes to pick up on all kinds of other things, but likes to reject certain ones, usually the thing that you just came out of. So pluralism is actually not that common a true pluralistic point of view. Okay, so what I'm trying to do is communicate a kind of integral way of just relating to this simple story. Sort of like saying everything matters. Every dimension of this story, every perspective in the story, bubbles, something bubbles up from the surface here that can be sort of collected and, and lived with. And the story itself is kind of a reflection of my own inner world. Mythic, magic, or magic, mythic, rational, pluralistic, and something else, integral. It's a map like that. It can, it can read like a map like that. And then it gets to the very last question of the story. Now I'm going to take this in a slightly different direction, but here's the very last line of the book of Jonah. You ready for it? It's Yahweh speaking to Jonah, and he says, should I not have compassion on 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left? That's the end of the book. Shouldn't I have compassion on 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left? Now think about that for a moment. Back to my question of what do we do with perspectives that we held five minutes ago? What do we do with people who don't hold our particular perspective? What do we do with people or people groups or ideas that don't harmonize with ours. That's exactly what the entire book is about. Yahweh is saying, what do you think, Jonah? Is it fair for me to have compassion on people you don't like? What do you think? What if they can't tell their right hand from their left hand? In other words, what if they don't know what's going on? How do we treat people in various places? That's what the entire book is about. The book of Jonah, surprisingly, 
is one of the few instances where you could say a more integral oriented question is emerging right in the middle of an ancient text because religion in the ancient world was fundamentally built on who's in the in-group and who's in the out-group. And the book is saying, you don't know what you're talking about to Jonah. Now, we know what we're talking about, of course. But Jonah, what, a, what an idiot, okay? So it starts to poke around in this stuff. So let me poke a little further. I want to take a few minutes to discuss this group belonging stuff. <laughs> group belonging and contamination. So here's my first claim. All people groups and all religions, even all ideologies, have the following things. They have rules for who's in and who's out. They have special language, special clothing, like the way you dress, special washing, special eating or foods, rules around sex, family frames, religious rules, special times and dates, and boundaries, okay? This is what all groups have in, climate, in common, including whatever group you think you're in. You think there's not a special clothing, not special language? Why do you put your, here's, uh, now, now I'll start stepping on people's toes. So get ready. Why would you put your uh, pronouns in your bio on, on Facebook or Instagram? Why would you do that? Because it's a signal for group. That's why. It's a boundary. I'm not saying boundaries are bad. I'm saying there they are. They're present. Everybody does it. Why? Like, imagine if you were a church and you had printed on a T-shirt something about Jesus. Why would you do that? Because you're signaling where the boundaries are, where the group boundaries are. Are you with me so far about boundaries? Okay. And... One of the problems, particularly in the ancient world, is what if somebody is inside your group that doesn't have on the right clothes, isn't using the right language, isn't washing the right way, has eaten the wrong foods, has had sex in the wrong way with the wrong person at the wrong time? What do we do with these people? We need to separate them out from our community. Are you with me so far? And contamination becomes the core of what keeps groups together and boundaries. You contaminate me out of my sight, that sort of thing. Which is, again, think about the Jonah question. Should I not have compassion on 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left hand? That's what Yahweh asks Jonah. And these people had the wrong clothes, the wrong language, the wrong religion. They didn't wash their hands. They ate pork. They had sex in the wrong way with the wrong people at the wrong time, so forth and so on. Isn't religion fun? So in other words, how do we know who's safe and who's not? There are rules. There are rules about, about this. Okay? I'm going to step on more toes. You ready? All right. <laughs> Wayne's always with me. <clears throat> the pandemic made this painfully clear. Okay? Masks, for example. I don't know if you've read the most recent information about masking. Do you know what it says? It didn't work. Okay? Masking didn't work. It had no effect. That's what the, that's the, check with the CDC, you don't believe me? Okay? It didn't work. There were certain very controlled environments inside hospital rooms where certain types of masks helped keep certain particulates inside the mask, 
but that's it. So wait a minute. Why the hell were we doing it is one question. But more importantly, it was used then for who's in and who's out. What group am I in? What group am I not in? And both sides were participating in it. We, in a way, we were going backwards in terms of religious consciousness to a much more magic and mythic worldview. Who's in my group and who's not? And I need to see the visual. Do you know the Jewish people on, on their clothing, this is from Leviticus chapter something, 15, I think, are supposed to tie tassels on their garments. You're familiar with it? You've probably seen a tallit. Now it's in a prayer shawl. It used to be in the ancient world. They had tassels on all their garments. You know why? So you're walking down the street, and you're like, hey, Jewish person, what's going on? Nice tassels, all right? You, it's, that's what was happening with masks. Oh, I see you're safe. Come on over here, not too close. Just stay over there, okay, because you're masking. Or you don't have a mask. You're like, you're my man. COVID you know, doesn't exist. That's how it became very, very quickly, all right? I can step on more toes along COVID if you want to, but I'm just saying it activated our own tribal magic and mythic consciousness. You contain those elements. I contain those elements. And actually pressure, in some ways, pulls us back down all the time. We get afraid. And so when we say transcend and include, we're also talking about a way of understanding our own psyches. We contain these elements. And we shouldn't pretend otherwise. I'm going to see if there's anything else here. Maybe I can say, now that things have calmed down in terms of COVID, we can actually bring in a little bit more of the rational. Say what worked and what didn't. Otherwise, there's no point in going forward. All right? Let's take vaccines. All right, let's put, I'll step on more people's toes here. Now, I, I don't know. I'm not a, you know. I'm going to take an integral perspective. Here's an integral perspective on vaccines. We live in the 21st century in one of the most amazing times in human history for science um, and for uh, medical advancements. Do you agree with that statement? And vaccines actually are a big reason why so many of us are here and still alive and uh, around the world. So they work, and various kinds of vaccines work. Not all vaccines work, but we can say it's definitely something worth doing. And so in an integral perspective, we should say we're facing a global pandemic. We should include very serious research and investigation into helping with this particular pandemic using vaccines. Do you agree with that statement? Okay. Here's another integral statement. Also, when it comes to human population, not being vaccinated might tell us a tremendous amount about how diseases move around and how the collective capacity to outlive something like this might be of some service. Because you know what the CDC also says? That not being vaccinated and getting, getting COVID makes you four times as strong in resisting the illness in the future. Four times. So all we conclude is, would you, it's possible to include both perspectives from an integral point of view. But what we would prefer to say is one person is righteous and one person is not. One person is pure, one person is impure. 
because that's part of that deeper, more magic, mythic mode of consciousness. I'd rather have an enemy. I love enemies. If I could say all the people on earth that should be rejected are those who are not vaccinated. How? That would be so easy. Then I could just look out and say, well, or I'd have to have some mode of checking people, you know, excuse me. I don't know how I would do this because those cards were ridiculous. Remember the cards that you could like write in your basement if you wanted to? But some other mode, do you see what I'm saying? How absurd that becomes? Is that the way we want to live? So Transcendent Include would, would at least wonder, are there modes of truth that all perspectives contain that can be gathered up and held in tension? So I want to read something here. Here's from the bulletin. So I, I'm going to try to answer, um, okay, fine, whatever you said, Kent, I don't know if I agree, sounds interesting, uh, I don't know. Let's say I do agree in part, how are you supposed to transcend and include? I mean, wh how, how, what's even one step? This is from John O'Donohue. We need to have greater patience with our sense of inner contradictions in order to allow its different dimensions to come into conversation with us. There is a secret light and vital energy in contradictions. Where there is energy, there is life and growth. Your ascetic solitude will allow your contradictions to emerge with clarity and force. If you remain faithful to this energy, you will gradually come to participate in harmony that lies deeper in contradiction. This will give you new courage to engage depth, danger, and darkness of your life. He's saying you are a wealth of contradictions. And if you're going to live, I'll interpret, in a more integral way, the place to begin is to admit your own contradictions, your own inconsistencies, your own um, lack of inner purity your own mixed-up nature. I've met, I was going to say all of you, I've met most of you, and, I've, and many of you I've had a lot of deeper contradic uh, contradictions, <laughs> conversations with you, and I've noticed that I can't pigeonhole any of you into anything, which means you're a walking wealth of inner contradictions, and so am I. And an integral perspective would say, yep, that's a place to start. If we want to live in a world that is much less us versus them, pure versus impure, righteous versus un unrighteous, we're the good spiritual group over on this side of the building, and the bad spiritual group is over there on that side of the building, we have to start, honestly, by saying we're a walking contradiction. We have within us all these things. We sometimes say this and act differently. And sometimes we, it's like Paul. I mean, uh, what does he say? What I want to do, I don't do. And, and what I, um, he says, what I want to do, I don't do. And what I don't do is what I do. See, that's someone I can trust, actually. You know, honestly. I, I can't trust people because I can't trust myself if I say, this is what I believe. I never compromise, I'll never change, I've got it figured out. That just simply is not going to work. 
Okay, so here are two questions we can carry. Here's a challenge, and I'm done. What's true about my previous worldview? I, I want you to try to wrestle with that question. What's true about my previous worldview that you had like five minutes ago? I think it's really worth wrestling with. Like, what's, what was true about it? What's still true about it? What, what needs to be included can be included. It's not that everything is included. Have you ever read the Psyche and Eros myth? Psyche is given a series of impossible tasks in order to find Eros, vitality, love, life, or lover, basically. And one of the tasks is an impossible sorting of seeds, like taking this seed out of the pile and placing it over here, sorting this giant pile of seeds. Transcending and including requires actually some sorting. It's like, what's true from my previous worldview? Well, I have to sort and sift. I have to take seeds and let the chaff, you know, blow away, that sort of thing. Number two, what if I looked in the mirror? So what's true about my previous worldview? And my second question is, what if I looked in the mirror? And what if I could find, what if I, the, ne the next week I decided, I'm going to look for my own contradictions. Start with politics, all right? And just say, do I contradict myself? <laughs> like, where do I really fall? Do I contradict myself? I bet you do somewhere. Because I don't see how anyone can just take a single ideology and follow it like some party line. I know you. You don't. So, all right, let's take a look in the mirror. And what if we um, opened, opened ourselves to the possibility of actually including our own inner contradictions? In other words, we have to find our own contradictions and What's that line you quoted the, a couple weeks ago, David? Whitman. Yeah. Do I contradict myself? I contain multitudes. And I'm saying, yeah, that's a more integral perspective. That's saying, yeah, I, I'm also full of contradictions. I contain these multitudes. See, let's take inclusion. This is the last thing I'm going to say. How many of you value inclusion? If you don't, you're not welcome here, and you should be cast out. <laughs> right? You see? You see how funny, you know, this, uh, this, uh, like, all right, I value inclusion, but here's the first thing we should say, because I value inclusion, and I think it's important, but I also have to be the first to say I'm not very good at it, and I'm actually prone to do the very thing that I would like to, you know, promote as, um, well, what's, what's a better way to say it? I do the very thing that I say I'm not doing. It's maybe the best way of saying it. And see, the moment you say that, then you're inclusive from an integral point of view. The moment you say, I value this, I don't do it, you can feel the door opening. It's like, oh, I can be around this person. They value it, but they, but they suck at it. Yeah, exactly. And see, that's, that's the power of looking in the mirror. And I think that's what John O'Donohue is saying here. He's saying we need to have patience. If we could have patience... And instead of dividing the world up all the time between who's righteous and who's not, and ultimately, I'm righteous and you're not, that's where it goes, we need to have a sense of patience with our own inner contradictions, and a tiny door starts to open, and we're easy to be around. Thanks.